Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Trevor Blake, a self-made multimillionaire whose personal story and insights into the nature of success form the basis of his newly released book, Three Simple Steps, A Map to Success in Business and Life. Trevor has an MBA from Durham University in the UK and was a graduate of Britannia Royal Naval College. He built two companies in the medical field, starting with a few hundred dollars, and he sold them for over a hundred million dollars each. I urge you to listen carefully and read his book because it contains a wealth of practical wisdom that could change your life. Welcome, Trevor. I'm so pleased to have you on the show. Thank you, Miriam. I appreciate the introduction. Trevor, why did you write this book? It certainly wasn't for the money. No, uh, actually, all my profits go to uh, cancer research and development because, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of self-help books. And I wrote this book because I thought it was about time there was an authentic book out there written by somebody who had actually practiced what he preaches. And, and, you know, all I've had in my life is the three simple steps to give me, give me a helping hand, if you like. And, um, Actually, what happened was uh, I decided to retire after I sold my second company. And I don't, I've always heard of people doing sabbaticals and thought it was sort of a romantic uh, notion. And so I told my wife I was going to retire, and she gave me one of those looks that only women can give. And then after <laughs> pacing the kitchen floor for two weeks, she said if I didn't start something new, she was going to murder me. <laughs> so she actually dispatched me to the airport to pick up a visitor. And I was looking through the um, the bookstore in the baggage claim area. And there was a new book out by a new self-help guru. And on the front cover was, you know, a full profile picture. And, and there was a stained glass window behind his head. And he was bathed in this heavenly light. And it, I just, I, I picked it up. And, and there were all these quotes and information taken out of context, of using religious text to try and make a modern point. And I thought, you know, this is, it has to stop. So I decided I'd write an authentic book. And so all my profits go to cancer research and development just to round off that authenticity. Mm-hmm. So there's basically nothing in it for me. So even if you don't like the book, at least you're doing something good. Tell us who you wrote the book for. It certainly is not limited to up-and-coming young entrepreneurs. I have the feeling that you had in mind anybody from a, an empty nester a housewife to anybody who's been laid off from their job to really anyone at any age. Yeah, it is fairly broad-based in terms of its audience, but I think all self-help books are. But the, well, for me, one of the demographics that's, that's really overlooked in Western society is the, the stay-at-home parent or the or the um, the empty nesters, if you like, because you know a generation ago, you know, when the children left home, went to college or went to work, and you were probably in your late 40s, early 50s, it was considered countdown time to retirement and 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 uh, old age, and you know you weren't expected to go out and and, and reinvent yourself. But we live in a different world now where you're actually expected to go out and get a job or go back to college or do something at, at, you know, in those late years, those middle-aged years. And it's fairly scary for most people. I come across a lot of people who find themselves suffering the same symptoms almost as grief in, in a way because the, the kids have left home and they have this empty feeling and they're only 50, which today feels like 30 used to. Or so I kid myself, <laughs> and uh, you know, and you, you, you're required to do something with your life. But of course, when you when you had your kids 20 years ago, the internet hardly had, had existed. So you're, you're in this really difficult technological age, and it can be very intimidating. So the book primarily was aimed to that audience, and obviously also the business audience, including the, the road warrior, because I'd been like that myself 
running from airport to airport convincing myself that what I was doing was important and making a difference. But I knew deep down it wasn't. And I know that feeling. And I meet a lot of people who have that feeling that they really, they were meant to be more than they are. And the book is about how you can put the brakes on and reinvent yourself to be all you were meant to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, with uh, the, the economic situation, a lot of people can't even afford to retire. So this is a very timely book indeed. Um, I was deeply, deeply moved by the story of your amazing mother and the challenges of your childhood. They clearly had a major influence on forming your character. Tell us something of this background. Well, everything I've ever achieved in life, I put down to um, wisdom that was passed on to me by my mother. She she had a very difficult life. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, uh, I was lucky in that I had a real-life hero to take ideas from, um, I found myself in a situation where we were very poor. So, so my parents were evicted three times before I was seven. And the third time, this is in the days, 1968, when it was possible to put all of your belongings into the back of a truck and head off to the hills and, and hide from the creditors and the bailiffs. And that's basically what we did. And, um, and so at eight years old, I find myself in this, this um, rural part of the world. It was like falling into the pages of the Chronicles of Narnia. So we left the inner city of Liverpool and ended up in the countryside, which must have been very hard for my parents. But for me, it was just a, an exciting adventure. But the downside to that was that I found myself in a place where my accent identified me as foreign or you know, English, uh, and we were in Wales, at a time when they, they, the Welsh were working very hard politically to get the English out of their country. <laughs> and, and we were also very poor. So you can't, you can't hide that you're poor because you, know, you have odd-fitting shoes and, and you're always wearing the same clothes. And so I became a target for the bullies and, and did everything that everyone does in those situations. I fought back sometimes and I ran away other times, but nothing seemed to stop the bullying. And it was fairly severe at, at one point. And so I just got out of everybody's way and I hid in, this, in the public library, the local town library. And uh, that's where I discovered these fantastic stories of self-made men and women. I became addicted to autobiographies. And, and those were my historical heroes. And they, they kind of saved my life because I started to see these three common behaviors that have formed the three steps for the book, three simple steps, in all of these great lives, Madame C.J. Walker, Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, they all did these three things. And I thought, well, if it works for them, it'll work for me. And I, I tried it and I've had a great adventure ever since. But the lucky part of all that story is I also had a real life hero because at the same time, my mother was given six months to live and she had breast cancer. And I was there when she told the doctors, quite matter-of-factly, I'm sorry, that's not enough time. I'm not dying until my children have all grown up and left the nest. And, and I saw in her eyes what unshakable belief looks like, real, real time. And that has always inspired me. Whenever I face a challenge, I always have that image in my head. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's helped me through life. There's nothing that's impossible. And, and she was proof of that because you know, I then obviously was, I observed her for the next 14 years, go through debilitating treatments and chronic pain without ever once complaining. And all the time making a difference to all the people who were around her. And she got to live out her dream. Her dream was to live long enough to see us all grow up. There were three children and, 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 and be safe and successful. And, and we all grew up, all got decent jobs, and were all decent people. Mm. You mentioned at the end of her story that um, at her funeral, more people came to her funeral than actually lived in the village. <laughs> yeah, well, the village had... 120 residents when we arrived there in 1968, and it had four, church, four chapels and two churches. <laughs> it was that type of village. It was very, very, very lost in time. And they all, so, so when you know, we went to church on occasions, and the, the, the congregation was probably about 30, um, 
But when my mother died, there were up to 300 people at her funeral from all over, the, not, not just from the village, obviously, but from all over the local villages and the towns, because she'd had such an influence on the people around her. She, um, my father couldn't really cope mentally with the fact that she might die at any moment and he'd be left bringing up three kids. And so he sort of tuned out of the world. He, he was unemployed my whole life and we lived on welfare. And he would sit at home smoking cigarettes and, and reading books. And, and my mother went out to work despite having the cancer had metastasized and gone to her bones. So, so she had a, she walked with a, a walking stick that we carved for her from a, from a branch of a tree ourselves. And, um, and the three kids walked with her. We go to school and then she, she got a job, a part-time job in a delicatessen in town. And in that position, I mean, she, she got that job because not because she needed the money, not before we did need the money, but the money wasn't great, and not because she needed an outside interest or anything like that, but because at the end of the day, all the food that had expired, which were normally thrown away, became our food, and that's how mm -hmm. we survived, basically. So that's why she got that job, and we knew that, and we all became part of it. Um, but, but in that role in this shop, she influenced so many people from all different aspects of life who just fell in love with her because of the power of her spirit. And so when she died, there were literally about 300 people at the at the funeral, and, and I didn't know half of them. I'd never met half of them. And um, amongst them were uh, John Lennon's first wife, Cynthia Lennon. Um, she, she had been married, and her name was Cynthia Twist. And she lived in a, she built a folly on a hill overlooking the town. I didn't even know that my mother knew her, but it turned out at the funeral she told me that they were fast friends. Um, mm -hmm. All of her friends from Liverpool were there. And there were also a couple of actresses from a famous sitcom, a British sitcom at the time called The Liverbirds. I had no idea my mother knew these people. She never really let on, but they had all been greatly influenced by her in one way or another. Interesting. Now, in your book, you have tried to distill the elements of your success into a formula that could be followed by others. And your three simple steps are indeed simple, but not easy. Where do you think the balance in this equation lies between your three-step formula and personal character? Um, I think of it more of a recipe in that these three steps uh, are like ingredients that you throw into a bowl. And if you don't use ingredients in the right order, you, instead of getting a beautiful tasting cake, you end up with wallpaper paste. So, so you do have to follow the three steps. You can't just jump in at step two or step three, and we can talk about why that is. But so, so step one um, is something, and, and these three steps are, are, like you say, they're simple, but they're not easy because they require a lifetime changing in habit, and it takes time to form a habit. So mm -hmm. step one is about reclaiming mentality, which is about getting back to that pioneering spirit with which everyone's born, but the world kind of crushes because we live in a world where we're greatly influenced by everything that's outside of us, our family, our friends, the media that we allow into our brains. And, you know, one of the things I noticed about those historical heroes like, you know, Henry Ford and Andrew Carnegie is they had crazy ideas that, well, everybody else said they were crazy, but they didn't allow everybody else to influence them. They still forged forward to achieve what they believed in. And, and so it's, I, I you know, realized early on, it's impossible to become self-made if the decisions you make for yourself in your own life are based upon the opinions of other people. Mm -hmm. And those opinions can be well-meaning or malicious, but, but we tend to make decisions based upon what other people think of us. And, and that's, that's why we get stuck. And so the, so the purpose of the book is to release you from, from, that, from that sense of quicksand, as I call it, and to get control of your mentality so that now you know when you have those great ideas, even though everyone else will tell you it's crazy, your intuition is telling you that it's right for you. So the book aims to, to put the three steps together so that eventually you get to a point where you start to trust your intuition again. Because uh, we live in a world where intuition is not valued. But I value it in my businesses. I valued it 
equally as much as any technical skill. And all of the decisions I've made for my businesses have been based on intuition and not market research or advice from anybody who's working around those companies. They've been purely based on what I feel inside myself. And oftentimes everybody else has run to the hills because they're afraid that I'm making a crazy decision, but the decisions always turn out well. And so the book aims to get you to that point so that one day you have this great idea of going back to college or starting a company or whatever it is for you, and and it, that idea can no longer be crushed because you're back in control, in control of your mentality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the elements of being in control of your mentality is a, a kind of a positivity. You quoted Mother Teresa as saying, I am not against war. I am for peace. I just loved that subtle shift. How right. do you, it's, it's, how do you apply that? Well, it's, it's funny. I took 275 pages to, to, to try and, to try and explain that one concept that she says in one sentence. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that is the true, that is the true concept because the, the starting point is that, is that everybody must accept that thoughts are a form of energy. And, and that's not an esoteric thing to say. It's a scientific thing to say because you can show now we have the technology. To, and, and in Three Simple Steps, I have a lot of uh, the latest neuroscience data summarized so we, so we can all understand what goes on in the brain. But we, technologically today, we can look inside the brain and we can see how neurons fire electricity and how when, they, when those points of energy connect, a thought is formed. So we can see it. We know a thought is energy. And the cutting edge of quantum theory, which is now string theory, shows that everything in life, you know, the phone I'm holding, even the gravity that's holding me in the chair that I'm sitting, all of that is energy, tiny strings of pulsating energy. And it's really important to grasp that first, because if you doubt that, you're really going to struggle with the three simple steps. But once you get that everything is energy, then you have to understand that energy follows simple laws of physics. It doesn't need you to believe in it in order to be a law of physics. It's just a law of physics. And one of the key things about energy is that it's interchangeable and equivalent with matter, E equals mc squared. This is you know, a formula that we've all learned in school, and we, we understand how it applies in the world outside of ourselves, but we, we somehow separate ourselves from nature as if, as if the laws don't apply to us, but they apply to everything around us. Well, they don't. They apply to all of us just the same. So energy is, is equivalent and interchangeable. That means that every thought you've ever had has the potential to become a real experience, even though you may have forgotten that you even had the thought. That's a, that's a critical understanding so that when you start to um, think about your own thoughts and think about the words that you use and the things that you do and how you react, you start to realize how that might be influencing your current life. And what most people do is have an instantaneous thought. If, if you see something you don't like or hear something that you think is unfair about you, you have an instantaneous thought that's negative. And that's okay because that's how the brain works. But thought happens so fast that you don't have time to intercept it. And that's why I'm not a big fan of self-help, because they talk about positive thinking, and there's no such thing. There's only positive reacting, because your thoughts mm. happen at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. So, so what you don't have any control over your thoughts, but what you do have control of is how you then react to the thoughts you just had, and that's what makes the difference. So, for instance, uh, when you started this show, you might have been feeling fit as a fiddle and on top of the world, and the first person you met said, oh, you're looking a bit tired today, Miriam. Well, if you don't react to that, an hour from now, you're going to start to feel really tired because you've let that thought enter. And in your mind, you've created images of yourself looking in the mirror, bags under the eye, gray skin. And I I hear this all the time. You'll suddenly hear somebody say, you know what, I do feel a bit tired. Well, they weren't five minutes ago. And so what you have to do is react differently. And I use some of these simple examples in the book so that people can get into the habit of doing it in easy, non-threatening situations so that once it becomes a habit, 
you can take it to a more serious situation. But if, if someone said that to me, I would immediately respond with, you know, I could use more energy. And that's what Mother Teresa is talking about. She's not against being tired. She's for having more energy. She's not against war. She's for peace. And the key principle is that if you think more about what you're for instead of what you're against, because all thoughts convert to matter eventually, you'll have a much better outcome in your life. And, and that's, why it's, that's why I say it's simple. But of course, you've got to break habits of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. You do talk about... Um distancing yourself from sources of negativity. And uh, even as a child, you invented um, a way to protect yourself from the negativity around you. Tell us about that. Yeah, as a, as a child, I didn't understand the science, the neuroscience, as to why these things work. But I noticed that, that you know, uh, Henry Ford and Samuel Colt and people like that had a way of protecting themselves from negativity and criticism around them. And they all gave it a different label. So they called it, some called it a deflection spell, some called it a protective shield. It's been called different things. And then when I was a teenager, I noticed uh, Sevi Ballesteros, who was a golfer, he, he mentioned on a TV interview one time I was watching that he used this, this protective technique, which is basically imagining that he's surrounding himself with a, a mentality shield, a, a sort of invisible shield, and everybody else's negativity bounces off it and falls to dust. And I thought, well, I'll try that because I was being bullied and people were calling me names behind my back in class and all this kind of thing. And it really bothers you when you're a kid. It really gets to you. And and uh, and I, so I would wear my shield in class and you know what? It changed everything. It no longer bothered me. For some reason, this stuff just didn't get through anymore. And that really, um, that really helped me. And so, I, you know, as a kid, I just did it because it worked. As I've got older, I'm a, I'm a passionate um, student, perpetual student of physics. Um, I've, I've understood what happens there. And the latest neuroscience shows that the brain works more like a muscle than we ever realized. So the more it's exposed to repetitive behavior, the more it starts to mimic that behavior, which is why, you know, if you surround yourself or are surrounded inadvertently by a bunch of complainers, eventually you become a complainer yourself. And there's nothing you can do about it because the neurons lock in, hardwire to that exposure. The more violence you see on TV, the more angry you're going to be as a person. That's how it works. And, and the key thing is to understand that. And once you understand that, then you know that the secret to not becoming the behavior that, you, that you're observing that you actually don't like is to break the connection. And that's where the distance comes in. And that's where that mentality shield worked as a kid, but I didn't understand how. But in my business life, I never, I've never been into a business meeting without first imagining myself covered in this invisibility shield. And, and it, it, it's wonderful because it allows you to tolerate these these crazy meetings that go on and on and on. <laughs> and also all the, all the you know, there's, there's a famous quote in these meetings that I use a lot. You know, everything that can be said has been said, but not everybody said it yet. And, and, and you have to sit there <laughs> while everybody says the same thing in a different way. Well, when you have your mentality shield on, it doesn't bother you anymore. You don't get frustrated and angry. You don't, you don't, you don't uh, trip yourself up by saying something you shouldn't in an inappropriate place. It, it's a very powerful technique, but, the, but what you're doing is breaking the connection. And so I always say to people, you know, if you, if you find yourself surrounded by a bunch of complainers and you really don't want that stuff in your head, you, you know, you can't imagine, um, you know, Madam C.J. Walker or, um, you know, Henry Ford or anyone like that. You can't imagine them tolerating a bunch of complainers around them. And, and you can't either. So break that connection. Take a, take a five-minute break. Go and get some fresh air. That's the best thing you can do. If you can't get fresh air, go to the bathroom. Um, if you can't take a break, then put that mentality shield on. And you will psychically, if you like, break that connection. And, and it's a very powerful technique. 
You mentioned Madame Walker. I must admit I had never heard of her. Tell us that story. It's quite remarkable. Yes, she's one of, you know, of course, written out of history a little bit. Um, she, she's a, uh, to, the, to the black community of America, she is a hero. But, of course, in a, in a white-dominated society, you can never get to hear about those type of heroes. Um, so she was born to slaves, and, um, she, and, and in her society, once the, once the slaves were granted their freedom, they were subject to rules that were even harder than how they lived in slavery. So everybody had to be employed, um, and the only employment they were allowed to have was agricultural. They weren't allowed to carry weapons, of course, and, that, and a weapon included a knife and fork. They had to be segregated. They weren't allowed out on the street without a, a, a white chaperone. Just, a, just a, an, such a difficult place to begin with. And not only was this young woman, C.J. Walker, dealing with that, but she found herself orphaned at 14 and then thrown into a marriage when she was pregnant. And then she was abused by, you know, quote unquote, the husband. Um, and she brought up the child on her own. And then later in life, you know, when she gets into her 20s, she gets abused a second time really quite badly by another man. And all of that stress um, caused her to lose her hair. She went bald. And, and uh, you know, it was a great embarrassment. I mean, she had so many things to overcome. But she didn't let any of it affect how she was as a human being and how she thought about herself. She didn't let any of that make her think of herself as low or ugly, which is often what we do when, when bad things happen to us, and um, like bullying, et cetera. Uh, and she she started to search for any kind of tonic that would help her hair grow again. And she came across this this formula, this supplemental formula. And she started to sell it locally. And then she built a company. And she became America's first female millionaire. And, and in today's money, she'd be worth about 300 million when she was at the height of her her life. But what I what really inspired me about her story, I mean that's an amazing story. And I remember when I read it the first time, I thought, well, my goodness, if she can overcome all of that, what am I feeling? Sorry about in my own life, and um, uh, so, so that was good inspiration for me. But what really inspired me from her story is all the work she did outside of the business itself. She was she was uh, uh, went up against some very powerful, very cruel white politicians to change the laws about lynching. Because in those days, you know, they, they could lynch somebody simply because they looked at them or smiled incorrectly or something like that. It's a terrible time. Hard to believe it's it's not that long ago, but. Um, you know, so she so she was a pioneer both for her business, but also a pioneer for human rights. And um, she should be an American icon, um, but of course because she's black. And, and you know, I have to say, it, when I came to the states in 1994, the open racism here just shocked me. I, I, I felt like I'd gone back in time hundreds of years, <laughs> and I still feel it today. I just don't get it. I never, I, I never, I never did. But you know, in England, that, that woman would have been. You know, her, her head would have been on the stamp that we used on our envelopes. I mean, it's such a great story. It, it is indeed. Now, you said in your book, you cannot reinvent yourself as part of a group. The aim is for you to become an individual again. You wrote that in the context of avoiding gossip or negative situations around the water cooler. But what do you see as the importance of individualism in general? It, it has to do, it has to go back again to understanding that all thoughts are energy and, and, and the challenge with that, with that is that if you're in a group, you have no control over anybody else's thoughts. So, so you might all be aiming for something, you might all have a common sense of purpose, which is what you try to achieve in companies all the time, but everybody has a different opinion of that purpose and they don't always, uh, you know, let you know what that opinion may be. And so when you're trying to reinvent yourself, 
if you're in a group and you tell a group that I'm reinventing myself, here's what I want to do, or, or you go to your partner and say, you know what, I'm going to start this company. And your partner might say, well, that's a good idea. Off you go. But your partner's thoughts are, oh, I hope it's not. I hope he's not going to make a fool of himself. You know, I mean, the thought might be not necessarily malicious, but might be out of love. I hope he doesn't make a fool of himself. What will happen if it doesn't go well? How will I pick him up? I'll put my arm around him. I'll hug him. I'll make him a nice dinner. You know, because the person you've shared this thing with has a very different thought process than your own. And the challenge with that is all of those thoughts are energy. And again, we have to say energy has no choice, no morals, no consciousness. Energy is just energy and behaves according to certain laws. And the challenge with that is when energies collide, they cause what's called interference. And interference can be constructive or destructive. The only way it can be constructive is if the energies are absolutely identical, both in power and amplitude. And of course, no people have exactly the same thoughts at exactly the same time, exactly the same images in their head. They're like fingerprints. And so you run a huge risk when you're in the group situation and sharing all your great ideas and your enthusiasm and all the rest of it, of actually destroying the energy that you need to achieve that. So I'm a great proponent, and this is hard for people to grasp, I think, sometimes, particularly because we live in a, in a world that says, well, praying is good and beneficial. And, and uh, you know, we talk in three simple steps about the difference between prayer and healing and the difference in results, the, the, the far superior results of remote healing to prayer and why that might be. And it has to do with, with this, this uh, um, clashes of energy. Um, when, when people you know, pray for somebody's health and that person hasn't asked to be prayed for and hasn't specifically told them what they want from the prayer, you end up with clashing energy and you don't get the beneficial result. Um, and, and so that's why this individual, um, you know, uh, Paolo Coelho said, the winner stands alone. And, and it's a, that, again, is a powerful statement. And that is true, that you have to, you have to, be, you have to build the confidence, and Three Simple Steps gets you that confidence. You have to build the confidence to understand that in many cases you're going to have to do this on your own. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's go on to step two, which is all about quiet time. One of the things that I, I, I hear the most from people is that they want to change their life in some way. They want to get out of the quicksand, but they just, just don't have any great ideas. And in the historical heroes we've mentioned, I noticed that they all had very similar techniques for getting far from the madding crowd, as they called it back then, 200 years ago, and, and, and just separating themselves, just sitting quietly and doing nothing. And they all got their eureka moments the same way. The invention of the car that a common man could afford when everyone says it's a luxury toy for the rich. Um, changing the construction material of choice from iron to steel. Uh, even Einstein's uh, solving the theory of relativity, something that he'd worked constantly on for 10 years and got nowhere. He got, he got the answer just sitting quietly giving up basically doing nothing he just he just sat down he says i'm done i can't solve this and he had 20 minutes sitting in a chair and the answer came to him and so i was fascinated by that because i wanted to get out of quicksand when i was a kid i lived in a place where the only jobs were farm work or forestry work i wanted more for myself than that or unemployment i wanted more so i but i didn't have any great ideas and uh, and at the top of the show you mentioned that i graduated from Britannia Royal Naval College, that it doesn't sound like a great idea today, but at the time that was an immense and great idea that I had because I wanted to travel and I wanted to be more than the pattern of life that was set for me. So I started to use the same techniques as those great men and women and just did what I call taking quiet time. Now, now people have, I get emails from all over the world and, and since the book's been published and, and this second step I get more emails about how this changes people's lives than, than any other and a lot of people take it into much more meaningful um, uh, discussion than I have in Three Simple Steps because I want it to be 
It's a technique that absolutely everyone can use starting tomorrow morning and see the same benefits or better benefits even than I have. There are no degrees, there's no levels, you don't need a teacher, you don't need to go to a group, you just simply sit quietly for 20 minutes, first thing in the morning. And so for the longest time I did it and my life changed completely, but again, because I, we didn't have the technology and I didn't have the, the, the understanding of physics to know what was happening in the brain during those times, I didn't know why it worked. But today, I do know why it works. And it works because we have 100 billion neurons and we spend all of our waking hours slowing them down. So for, for my brain to be able to help me coordinate the muscles of my throat to speak in this phone or to get out of bed in the morning and coordinate the muscles of my fingers and thumbs so I can type on my tiny uh, mobile phone keyboard, that's incredibly slow work for the brain and it has to screech almost to a halt to help us achieve the things that we think are progressive and fast and rapid. What happens when you just sit and do nothing is, is left undistracted. You allow your 100 billion neurons to work at the speed of light. And for most people, they never let that happen. And so instead of descending, which you would get from many meditation techniques, it's more of a transcending technique. It's more like transcendental meditation, really. But it's not a meditation. I don't, I, I don't like to use the word meditation very much because it's, it is complicated. I've never been very good at it. And, uh, and you do need to be trained, I think. You need a good teacher for meditation. But for taking quiet time, you just let your brain do what it does for 20 minutes and just sit there. Don't try to do anything. And amazing things happen as a result of that because those 100 billion neurons make more connections than all the cell phones on the planet. And that can only be good for you. And suddenly, out of nowhere, you start to get these brilliant moments of insight that separate the successful from the want to be successful. And that's what I found in these autobiographies of all of these great industrialists. And uh, I tried it myself. And I, I went from not having an idea to developing a reputation in my career as being something of a troubleshooter in that people would have a problem and they would start to say, well, we'll go and get Trevor for that. We'll go and bring him into this project. And, and I, I've, I, you know, I'm a businessman and yet I found myself working with scientists working on cancer solutions and, and, uh, uh, and uh, protein carousing phosphatases. I know how to say it. I have no idea what they are, but I'm, <laughs> I find myself solving their problems. And it's because, because it, that connection, that daily connection allows you, it's bit, I, I think of it a bit like, you know, when you sit in front of your computer, with a click of a mouse, you connect to all the computers in the world, to the World Wide Web. And I think with your brain, you do the same thing. When you sit down for 20 minutes, you allow your brain to connect with everything in life. And that's where the solutions always are. Um, that's what Emerson said, you know, that all the, all the solutions to all the questions that could ever be asked are in nature if you'll only learn how to listen. And, and that's what I think it is. I think you're a businessman in metaphysician's clothing. <laughs> well, I think of myself as a pragmatic businessman, and you know, I don't—I I never used to really talk about these things uh, openly until I didn't want to talk about them until I could stand up and say, "Look, it's worked for me. This is the only advantage I've had," and and, and here's the proof. You know, I, I can now—I now have the credibility to stand up and talk about what it takes to achieve the American dream. But but through the years. Every time I've come across somebody who feels stuck, I've put them on this program, and their lives have been completely transformed. You know, so I've seen it hundreds of times, and now obviously I'm getting hundreds of emails telling me that it's happening all over. Um, it, but but it, it seems a little esoteric. It seems a little metaphysical. But what I hope I've achieved in three simple steps is to show that what the what the ancients have been telling us to do for thousands of years, we can now show scientifically was good advice. And I think it's good to have that balance between the what well, seems like a good idea and here's how it's really working in the brain. So it is a good idea. And that's what I tried to achieve with the book. 
Okay, let's go on to step three. What is step three? That is how you take those great ideas that you've just had and turn it into a real experience. And, and what it tries to do, well, first of all, it takes, it takes um, all the techniques that have ever been taught about goal setting and throws them out of the window because they're based on a, on a, um, a culture. It's based on the industrial age culture whereby uh, the, the concept is one of conquering and taking and colonization, um, uh, stealing of materials. And so, so goal setting, as it's been taught, taught about, some people have built brilliant careers teaching it incorrectly, I have to say, is that it's about, it's like an Indiana Jones adventure where, where, you, where if you want to achieve anything, the concept is that you have to step over all the bodies of the poor souls that didn't make it and then you have to overcome increasingly difficult challenges which you just managed to survive and then you take the treasure that wasn't yours to begin with. And, and that, that's the concept for achievement in, in our world. Well, you know, nature doesn't work that way. Nature doesn't set your challenges. Nature works and physics works effortlessly. And so what I've, what I've done in step three is show that you have to get rid of that mentality, that thinking, and you have to work with what I call intentions. And intentions are goals with all doubt about their achievement removed. There's a certainty to it. And we get into some conversation about what really is women's intuition and, and, and how do you as a man start to develop that same incredible insight and intuition that women have. And how do you as a woman start to take confidence in your intuition and bring it out into the world, a world that has suppressed it for hundreds of years. And so it's about getting the balance both as an individual and also if you have a company, you know, as a, as a group, getting the balance between the warrior mentality that's taught frequently and the intuitive mentality, which is suppressed frequently. And what you end up with is what you need to be successful. You have the hunting and gathering skills that you need to survive, but you also have the intuition to sense danger and notice opportunities. And it's getting that balance right that allows you to step out of your quicksand and achieve all of those dreams that you're starting to have. Mm -hmm. So you uh, talk about nature uh, in your book as something that really feeds into really your connection with what you call the matrix. Um, tell us about the importance of being in nature to you. Well, for me, for me, it's the source of, you know, nature's energy. And it's, a, and it's a very palpable energy. I mean, you can feel it when you're walking outdoors. It's very difficult to feel the energy of the world when you're sat in a neon-lit meeting room with your backs to the window and a plastic potted plant in the corner. That doesn't, there's not a lot of energy in that situation. And yet, oddly enough, in business, isn't that what we all do? Uh, put ourselves in the most uncreative environment possible. So, you know, I've been a great proponent of my businesses of, of taking groups of people who face a challenge and get outside. We just go outside for a walk and let's see what happens. And, and amazing things happen. As, as it is. And I think it's because those 100 billion neurons are constantly looking for connections. And, and when we discussed earlier about how the brain is more like a muscle than we realize and that the brain locks on to what it's exposed to, you know, if, if you're not outside in nature and so you're inside and you've got the TV on and you're locked on to sensationalist news headlines, that's where your life is going. And if you're in the meeting room and you're locked on all of this nonsensical discussion around the table with your backs to nature, all of those brains will lock internally and that's not a very creative process. So what you need to do is, is, is go forward. You, you need to be always looking forward so, so in nature your brain can connect with everything. It can connect with all of that energy that's out there. And if anyone's listening, I doubt the people listening to your program uh, would, would um, 
contradict what I'm saying. I'm sure they understand and feel, and, and feel the power of nature when, the, when they're walk, taking a walk in the country or you know, sitting watching a stream or, or just looking at a night sky. Um, but you know, outside of your audience, I think many people can't remember the last time they took a walk for no reason except to take a walk or you know, put, the TV, put the TV off for five minutes while the commercials are on and stepped outside and, and looked at the starry sky or, or even better, take the shoes and socks off and stand on the grass. You know, we, do, we used to do that all the time as kids. We used to hug mm. trees and play in, play in muddy streams, and it felt so natural, and, and it, was, it felt right because our bodies and our minds were connecting with this really powerful source of energy. And unfortunately, we, we, you know, we're not allowed to be childlike as adults, or we're not supposed to be, but I, want, I, I encourage everybody to get back to being like you were as a child and, and connect with that nature. So if you've just, if you're in control of your mentality, so you're following step one, you've, you've been doing step two for a while now, a couple of weeks, and then suddenly you have this brilliant idea, after that brilliant idea, you've got to be absolutely sure that you connect your neurons to something that's going to support that idea. If the first thing you do after you've had the idea is to go downstairs and put the talk news radio on, which is telling you that the sky is falling, you've lost it. And your brain, your, your neurons have gone back in, they've started to peel backwards. What you need to do is immediately do something powerful and positive. And that's what I always recommend when you have a great idea, you go out and talk to a tree or something. <laughs> or talk to but, I mean, I tell my dogs everything, you know, so I go and tell the dogs about it. And, and, and what you've done then is you've released it into a positive environment instead of crushing it in this really negative place that we tend to do. It's, and I'm not, I'm not trying to blame anybody. But there's, no, there's no blame here, but it's just that we've, we don't typically understand how the brain works. And so we tend to do things that are harmful instead of things that are beneficial. Well, one of the things that we do to ourselves that is so harmful is not trusting ourselves. I mean, you, you talk about gaining the confidence to get into a state of knowing, um, not just thinking or believing, but actually feeling it in your bones. That is so difficult. Uh, do you have any tips on how to, to get there? Yes. Yeah, and that's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you, Miriam, because that's key to the third step and, and uh, how you turn great ideas into reality. What I talk about is, is different levels of belief. There's, there's, there's a desire, and if you have desire, that's better than having no desire, so your life might improve a little bit, but it'll be vague, and it might just improve in some area you're not expecting. And if you have belief, you know, which everybody says you've got to believe, I don't, I don't think you do, because the laws of physics don't need you to believe in them to be laws of physics. But everyone says, oh, you, if you believe... I think that more powerful energy does bring better things to you, but again, it's fairly unspecified. What you need to do is to get to a sense of knowing. And a sense of knowing is, is, is you know, women know it really well, like, like women's intuition. I mean, you could just have a, a feeling about somebody you've never met, and you just know it. And, and it's a real powerful, really powerful connection. I envy it. I always say to my wife, if I could bottle women's, even 10% of women's intuition, I'd be a multi-billionaire, because it, it's such a powerful thing to have. And, and so... Um, the third part of the book helps you, it shows you some techniques to help you, as a man or a woman, get to that strong sense of knowing. And the way to do it, one of the main ways to do it, is that when you have a great idea or a dream or a desire of any description, you imagine it as already achieved. And the reason you do that is that the latest neuroscience data shows quite conclusively that the brain cannot tell the difference between what is imagined and what is real. And there was a cutting-edge a clinical trial that was done just a couple of years ago where they had some students, uh, music students, play a five-bar uh, piano exercise and they monitored in the brain which neurons were connecting and how it fired up and all the rest of it. And then they took some students who'd never ever played the piano before in their life and they had them imagine, sit on their hands 
and imagine playing that same five-bar piece of music. And when they compared the two um, MRI images of the groups, there was no difference at all. They couldn't tell which group had actually done the exercise and which group had just imagined it. And that's really powerful data. And that supports some of the things that the ancients have been telling us in that if you imagine something is already achieved, eventually you achieve it. Eventually it pops up because you, 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 instead, of, instead of it always being in front of you and always being something that you wish you had, and, and when, you, when you wish you had something, what you're really thinking about is what you don't have. So you tend to focus more and more on what you don't have. And of course, mm -hmm. because thoughts are energy, you end up with more of what you don't have. So, so the secret, or one of the, one of the main secrets, is to imagine what your world has already achieved. And the, and the more you do it, the more depth you get to that imagination. So you can imagine your perfect day as you uh, drive to the Aston Martin dealership, and you can imagine the smell of the, the, um, uh, the hand-sewn leather and the sheen of the roof, and, and you can you can feel because uh, these, these cars have nothing except real materials in it. So you can feel the iron and the steel on the dashboard, and you can do all of that as if you already own it. And then one day you'll own it. I've, and I've done that exact exercise. It sounds rather like. Sorry. It sounds rather like magic. It is magic, and life is magic. It's meant to be. Um, but everything is magic, and you know, I think we've lived in a society where magic seems like it's, it's, it's only something that the elite can have access to, and it's mystical. There's nothing mystical about magic. If I, if I pull out four or five inert ingredients, flour, um, sugar, butter, and eggs, and, and, and a strong elbow, and I put it all in a bowl, and I mix it in the right order, the right amount of time, and I put it in the oven, and I apply heat to it, well, that's magic. What comes out is the most beautiful tasting cake. That is magical. And, you know, if I have a blank piece of paper and I take some strange colors and, and, a, and, a, and a brush and I start brushing and I produce a picture, that's magical. But, and, and why should success be any different? If I take the elements of success and use them in the right order, I'll have a beautiful, successful life. And that, that is magic. But it, magic is available to everyone. Mm. Tell us what you've done with your magic wand. Um, well, first of all, I found my soulmate, which I think was very, very important. I was a very lonely lad and felt pretty low and ugly because of all the bullying. You know, when, when, a, when a boy gets bullied, girls don't come to his rescue. They tend to reject any notion of being around that person. And so that, so I, I had low self-esteem, but managed to find my soulmate. I've been happily married for 30 years, and that's the number one thing in my life, the thing I appreciate the most. Um, you know, we've never even had a serious row in 30 years, and we are still like girlfriend, boyfriend in our life together. That, that truly is magical. Um, I must say that Linda, Linda sounds like an amazing person, sort of a, 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 an, an apt successor to your mum. Well, and, and ironically, uh, that my mother introduced me to her because I was, I was pushing my mum along the hospital corridor uh, for her chemotherapy when this nurse, it felt like someone tapped me on the shoulder, actually, but this nurse walked out, so she didn't actually touch me. This nurse walked out of a side ward, and they obviously knew each other. They threw their arms around each other and were telling old stories that I didn't even know my mum knew this person. And then she looked up, and that was it. I was, I was, I was captured mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, found guilty and sentenced to 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that was quite incredible. And I think my mother knew. She always had a little twinkle in her eyes. She, she, she knew somehow. Unfortunately, she died before we got married, but she got she, at least she at least she knew my wife. That's the main thing. Um, but yeah, she is. My wife has been given six months to live three times in her life. The last time was five years ago. Um, 
and she she has the same attitude as my mother always had in the who are you to tell me that it's my time to go? I'll tell you when it's my time to go. She actually, last time it was, last time um, it was in a bone marrow transplant unit down in Southern California, and she actually said to the bone marrow transplant physician, actually, first of all, she said, I'm not having a bone marrow transplant because you've got a diagnosis wrong. And he looked at her like she was crazy. Uh, and he actually, she said to him, I'm not done nagging Trevor yet. Well, I'm <laughs> nagging Trevor. I'll let you know. And, and she's a woman of a word. I mean, she just, she was right as well. Um, tell us about your, your uh, latest company. Uh, so I, well, I've started, um, I've had four companies, I've sold two of them. I still own a third of the third one, which is a, a cancer drug research and development company, which has a very unique business model in that we have no employees, no facility, um, and every cent that I put in and my, my co-founder puts in and all the profits from this book, obviously, they go directly into the laboratory so that everyone knows that, you know, what they've contributed actually is making a difference. It's not going into the pocket of a highly paid executive. It's actually going into the laboratory. So that's very important. I'm, I'm passionate about that company. Uh, and I started a... a whoa, 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 whoa. And what does the company make? You forgot to mention that. Oh, so we... we um, I, again, synchronicity. I had an idea. Well, I was always... When my mum went through her cancer, she handled her cancer with tremendous grace. But the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy, as, as most people who've been through that know, you know, pokes at your womanhood and your dignity, and, it, and the side effects are horrible. And so I've always been passionate about finding drugs that are equally powerful for treating the tumor but have lower side effects. Therefore, you can use them for longer, and the patient can, can, still, live, you know, can, can still live like a real human being in that very difficult environment. Um, and, and so that's always been sort of on my whiteboard, on, on my intention. And then I found myself in a position where I... I came across some inventions from a physician in San Francisco that do just that. And no one, everyone else said he was crazy. No one would, no one would take it on. And I, I uh, got the patents and licensed those inventions. And we've done very well so far. So we're at the stage, we're at IND stage, we call it, which is what we've done is all the preclinical work to prove that this is safe to be put into a patient. And, and we're ready now to, to start the clinical trials for, uh, for two of these lead compounds. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're both natural. Uh, one's based on a maple leaf, uh, and another one is, is really based on acorns. Uh, and the compounds are very well known. They've been well studied, and many people have tried and failed. And this brilliant man in San Francisco understood why they had failed, and he's modified the compound. And what you end up with very, is, is with very powerful anti-tumor compounds that don't have any side effects. And this kind of this kind of closes the circle because you've really established this uh, company in in honor of your mother. Yes, and and, and uh, the first invention we called AD One, and my mother's name was Audrey Dowick, Audrey Dowick mm-hmm. Blake. Mm-hmm. So AD One is is the lead compound, and then we have AD Eight Hundred One, which is the code for the for the second one. And, and it would be so, I, I mean it would be something to be very proud of, I think, to get something like this in the clinic, and then eventually it becomes a drug, and it's named after. After my mother, that that would be a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Lovely. So, where can people find out more about you, your book, your work? Well, ev- everything's available through threesimplesteps.com, uh, and that's that's three spelt out, so T H R E E simplesteps.com. Uh, I have a blog there um, where I put out articles, um, not for any people do blogs for all kinds of reasons. I just do them if some if some thought inspires me, and I think it's going to be of interest to anybody. I love writing, so I'll just put it out there. And I, and I do get some nice comments about the articles. They, people, they, they, they cover a gamut of 
topics and, and people do find them useful, especially people who are following the three simple steps because, you know, like I say, the steps are simple, but they're not easy and it's good to have a helping hand available if you need it. Indeed. Well, I can recommend Trevor's book, Three Simple Steps, without any reservation whatsoever. It is such a gift. And Trevor, I want to thank you for the gift of your being on our show. It's been a delight. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate being invited and for the good questions. Thank you, Trevor. I hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Kingsley Dennis author of New Consciousness for a New World, will be talking about how to thrive in transitional times. And now we're going to conclude today's show with our track of the week called These Are the Days by the fabulous Gina Sitoli. It's with Grammy winner Barry Goldstein. It's from her one-woman musical, A Cabaret of Consciousness. We're on the threshold of a new frontier A new It's a fascination and imagination and love.
That was These Are the Days by award-winning singer-songwriter Gina Sitoli, whose powerful and transforming music has been used by NASA and in international CD compilations for peace. You can order and download her music from CD Baby or from her website, ginacitoli.net. That's G-I-N-A-C-I-T-O-L-I dot net. If you enjoyed our show and looking for more inspiration, reviews, and interviews, visit our website at ncreview.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. I hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.